This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, June 18th, 2012. I'm Caleb Brown. President Obama's health care law does not, as it turns out, empower the IRS to, in many cases, penalize employers for failing to provide health insurance to workers. And that flaw stops cold, much of the law's machinery. Jonathan Adler, a professor of law at Case Western Reserve University, comments. Michael Cannon here at the Cato Institute has made a big deal about the state-based health care exchanges that were created by the health care law. States are asked to create them. It's not required. And if they don't, then the feds are supposed to create uh, a, an exchange in the state. But unfortunately, a lot of the goodies that go along with the state-based exchanges do not occur with the federal exchanges. That itself is a problem. Many states have said we're not going to create exchanges. You point out an additional problem that is related to that. What is that problem? The two problems are one, that with federal exchanges, the federal government cannot offer tax credits and premium assistance to make health insurance plans offered in the exchanges affordable. The second problem is, is that if the federal government can't offer tax credits, then it doesn't have a trigger to enforce what's called the employer mandate. And that that mandate is a requirement that larger employers provide qualifying health insurance plans to their employees. And the way the law is written is that when an employer fails to do so, they're supposed to pay a penalty to the federal government. But the trigger for payment of that penalty is the issuance of a tax credit to an employee. So if there are no tax credits, there's no penalty. So the federal government is essentially saying to employers, once your employee is not using the insurance you provide, we can now assess you this penalty. But if the employee is not able to collect these benefits, the employer is essentially off the hook, as, as written. As the law is written, that, that is the way it works. And one rationale for that would, would be is that the, empl- the federal government's view is large employers have an obligation to provide insurance. If they fail to do so, then they have to compensate the federal government for subsidizing insurance for their employees. But that subsidy can't be provided then there is no trigger for the penalty on employers. And that dramatically alters the way the law will operate in those states that don't create their own exchanges. And the current estimate is that could be anywhere between 15 and 30 states. We were speaking before uh, recording this, and it seems clear that the IRS is moving ahead with this without regard to what the statute actually says. The IRS has just recently finalized a rule saying that it will provide tax credits or recognize tax credits for health insurance plans bought on both state-run exchanges and federal exchanges. And that is clearly not what the law provides. The law, the provision in the law that provides the tax credits both mentions that they're for purchase of plans in state exchanges and mentions the statutory section number that provides for state-run exchanges. It does not mention the statutory section that provides for the creation of these federal fallbacks. The IRS rule essentially inserts an additional statutory reference that's not in the statute to allow for these tax credits for federal exchanges. And when challenged, the IRS has yet to identify any language in the bill that supports what it wants to do. What have lawmakers said? Clearly, they're they're viewing this now as a mistake. Well, some members of Congress have asked the IRS for a justification and an explanation. And all the IRS has said is, well, the structure of the law and the relevant legislative history shows that this is what was intended. Um, Some uh, individuals who support the law claim that this was a mistake. 
Uh, but Michael Cannon and I have been looking at the legislative history, and it's pretty clear that this was not a mistake. Uh, it's true that folks in the House uh, wanted federal exchanges to be equivalent to state exchanges. But it's also clear that some individuals in the Senate saw the tax credits as something that would be conditional on states creating exchanges. And the reason for that is, is the federal government can't tell a state what to do. The federal government can't go to a state and say, we think exchanges are a good idea, you must do it. What the federal government has to do instead is provide incentives. It can provide carrots, it can provide sticks. And one of the carrots the federal government provided was funding for states. A second carrot, the way the law is written, is tax credits for a state's citizens. And it's clear that that's what some of the authors of, of the legislation wanted to do, and that's the way it operates. The IRS is taking the view that since apparently a lot of states don't view this carrot as all that worthwhile, we're just going to change the law to, to make sure the tax credits are available anyway. The issue, uh, one of the issues before the Supreme Court is whether or not to throw out the entire law or just throw out the individual mandate. Does It's clear the Supreme Court's job isn't to fix errors that are clearly stated in a statute, but does this uh, give them an indication of what they ought to do, whether to throw out just the mandate, whether to uphold the whole law, whether to throw out the law as a whole? Well, certainly as a legal matter, I don't think it's, it's directly relevant in, in the Supreme Court's severability analysis. But it does illustrate a point that Paul Clement tried to make at oral argument. During oral argument, uh, Paul Clement noted the history of campaign finance litigation since Buckley versus Vallejo. And, and, and Buckley versus Vallejo, the, the very important 1976 decision on campaign finance law, the Supreme Court upheld portions of the post-Watergate campaign finance regulations and struck down others rather than throwing out the entire law in one fell swoop. And as Clement noted in that oral argument, is that ever since we have had constitutional case after constitutional case on campaign finance reform, the Supreme Court has been in this business now for over 30 years because it tried to save some of the law and not strike the whole thing down. What the exchange controversy illustrates is that we will see the same thing in healthcare if the entire law isn't struck down. There will be litigation over these exchange provisions. There will be litigation over uh, IPAP. There will be litigation over uh, implementation of, of Medicaid, assuming the Medicaid provisions aren't struck down, and so on. There will be years and years and years of litigation under this law if any of it is left in place. Jonathan Adler is a professor of law at Case Western Reserve University. You can read more about Obamacare at our website, cato.org.